You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Master who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures. Instill in us also the fear of your blessed commandments so we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God. And we and to you we give glory together with your eternal Father and your all holy, gracious, and life spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Well, welcome back to all of our participants here for the Sunday Gospel Reflection. And uh, Annie Mitchell, how are you doing today? Doing fine. You're sounding rather calm. Today, I, I am. I am rather calm. I'm very excited. Well, I'm calm because I'm very excited about our biblical texts, which are really cool. Yes. You know, it's a kind of a funny one here, actually, because biblically in the gospel, we put the whole thing into reverse because of the feast of the transfiguration falling on a Sunday. So yeah. the transfiguration falls on a Sunday. We got to jump ahead to the transfiguration, but then we fall back to our regular progression that we've been doing through the gospel of Matthew. But nevertheless, uh, it's right here in the midst of the text we're looking at for the transfiguration. I mean, this is all part of it. So, so that makes me kind of excited. And besides that, the Old Testament text here in First Kings is one of my favorites. So let's one. jump on in. Let's do it. All right. Here are the readings for the 19th Sunday in Ordinary Time. The first reading comes from the first book of Kings, chapter 19, starting off with verse 9 and then going from 11 through 13. The responsorial psalm is taken from Psalm 85. The gospel this weekend is Matthew chapter 14. I think we spent like four weeks in Matthew 13. So Matthew chapter 14, yeah. verses 22 through 33, and the epistle, we're continuing our way through St. Paul's letter to the Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. But I have to tell you that as you usually do, you say, what did we miss when we looked at the, when we skipped through the, and we missed some fundamental stuff here that we're going to have to go back and look at from a theme standpoint. And the only reason I know we're missing stuff that's fundamentally important is because we just did our study of the transfiguration. So I was looking back, contextualizing, contextualizing, contextualizing as preparation for the study. And it's pretty juicy stuff. So we have to go back and look at it. But let's take yeah. a look, at Annie, here at First Kings. You said chapter 19. Chapter 19. We're starting off with verse 9. Okay. First Kings chapter 19. And by the way, if any of our participants today are new to the ICC and you are not yet a member of the Institute and you're like, what is that? Where do I get that Feast of the Transfiguration Bible Study? Go on our website. It's posted there. I think it's posted now. It should be. And uh, under recent events. And then you're going to be able to get it there. But you have to sign up as a member. It's free of charge. Just put your email in so we can let you know what we have coming up. And then uh, you'll have full access to everything at the Institute. But the Feast of the Transfiguration Bible Study is a lot of fun. Come and join us there uh, on demand if you like. But for now, let's take a look. First Kings chapter 19, yep. verse 9. All right, here we go. At the mountain of God, Horeb, Elijah came to a cave where he took shelter. Then the Lord said to him, go outside and stand on the mountain before the Lord. The Lord will be passing by. A strong and heavy wind was rending the mountains and crushing rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, there was a tiny whispering sound. When he heard this, Elijah hid his face in his cloak and went and stood at the entrance of the cave. 
it is a really cool reading. I mean, let's yeah. just start off with that for sure. So, um, but let's start off with um, context of the location. Where is this mountain Horeb? Yeah, Mount Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. Okay, so Elijah takes this journey. I'm sorry, I was going back, but because I was going to look at something else with you first, but this is good. Um, in verse eight, previous, and he rose and ate and drank, and he went the strength of with food 40 days and 40 nights, much like Israel wanders in the desert for 40 years, right? He ends up back. It's like a reverse exodus. He ends up back at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, the mountain of the Lord, the mountain of God, as it says here in verse nine and uh, out there in the Sinai wilderness. That's your answer. Okay. So why is this happening, Father? I mean, like, why is God choosing to pass by Elijah on this mountain at this moment? Oh, I thought you were going to ask a different question. Um, oh, which, do you want which, to ask? which I thought, well, I thought who you were going to big, Elijah big, big, and, uh, no, give us a not who's Elijah. Everybody knows who Elijah is, but, but why is he going to Horeb? Right? Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Like why? Well, does you this can't, I can't answer your question until we know why he's going there. Right. Because that's why the Lord reveals himself the way he does right um so let's just let's just go back very quickly and get a little context here for ourselves um and that is um uh chapter 16 chapter 16 verse 29 i think we looked at this passage uh, a few weeks ago but chapter 16 verse 29 in the 38th year of asa king of judah Ahab, son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. So those are new to ICC, Sunday Gospel Reflection. Andy and Mitchell are going to tell you the difference between these two kings and these two places, Judah and Israel. Go ahead, Andy. Oh, well, Judah is the southern tribe and Israel is. So that's um, with the tribe of Judah and then Benjamin. Benjamin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of latches onto it. And then yeah. you've got the 10 northern tribes. They split off because of Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the sons of Solomon, who, um, you know, didn't really get along. Right. Which, well, no, Rehoboam and Jeroboam are not the sons of Solomon. Okay. Rehoboam is the son of Solomon. Jeroboam is the captain of Solomon's guard who ends up becoming the king over the northern ten tribes when they split. If you want to go look at this, first Kings chapter 12 sorry chapter 11 and chapter 12 chapter 11 chapter 12 first kings you can read that get your context down exactly so you have a schism in in, in the 12 tribes that come into the holy land after the exodus they divide up the land the 12 tribes you all know that but there's a schism that takes place now during the time of king solomon's son who's a bad king the northern 10 tribes break they follow this other guy jeroboam and rehoboam in the south can holds jerusalem so now we're going to apply that now a couple generations later to this text that we looked at chapter 16 verse 29 and now you got new kings that are reigning there and it's asa who's in judah so asa is the descendant of solomon through uh rehoboam right and then um and then you have ahab who's now gained control over the northern 10 tribes He's reigning, his throne city is the city of Samaria, which you can see in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 24. But notice now more information, verse 30. Okay. And Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria. So in Samaria, the area becomes known as Samaria because the throne city is Samaria. 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all that were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of uh, the son of Nebat, there's Jeroboam coming up. Mm-hmm. He took for wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, uh, king of the Sidians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Uh, and blah da 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 the whole thing goes apart and in chapter 17 verse 1 who shows up on the scene to say naughty 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 the prophet elijah 
who says to Ahab and Jezebel, you're worshiping false gods and things aren't going to go well for you. Well, Jezebel doesn't take kindly to this and begins hunting from this point on, really begins hunting Elijah, trying to kill him. And in the midst of all this, she, she apparently kills all of the prophets hanging around, all of the faithful priests, not all of them, but most of them. And Elijah is flees for his life. But in the middle of him fleeing for his life, well, he doesn't quite flee yet. He hides from them. But then he appears again and confronts Ahab. And in chapter 18, verse 17 and following, okay, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, you have and your father's house has, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all of Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered to Carmel with all the priests, all the pagan priests. So. Here we go. In the rest of chapter 20, you can read it for yourself. Elijah calls the first ecumenical council, yes, to discuss how we should do this. An ecumenical, not council, but an ecumenical meeting so that he can, you know, accompany the, uh, the pagan priests in their journey to discover the truth. And the truth is these guys are a bunch of heathens. They're a bunch of liars. Who are who are telling the people that there are gods? That there are no gods, right? These these false gods. So so you'll see in in, the, in there in chapter twenty, Elijah tells them to sacrifice to their gods, and they begin trying to sacrifice gods. There's nothing happening, nothing happening. Finally, Elijah sacrifices to the true God, yes, and fire descends from heaven and consumes the sacrifice, proving that Yahweh is the only true God. And so, of course, Elijah does the only kind thing and slits their their throats and. And, and it frees God's people from the yoke of the enemy because, you know, because worshiping Pacamama is not a good idea. Yes? Enough said. Yeah. But now here we are because once he slits their throats, things go from, from bad to worse with, uh, with the prophet. And so chapter 19, verse 1 Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he had slit their throats, and how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. He rose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servants there. But he himself went a day's journey and blah, 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 we continue on. He ends up 40 days out into the wilderness, having been fed by the angels. And then he ends up in this cave up in the mountain. So I asked the question to answer your question, Annie. Why is Elijah hiding in a cave on Mount Sinai? Because Jezebel wants to slit his throat. Because he's afraid, right? Yeah. Now, should Elijah be afraid? The guy just completely... I know, this is amazing to me. Yeah. Okay, but he's fearing for his life. And here is the, here is the, 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 the spiritual theme that the church is giving us today. And that is that in the midst of the turmoils of this world and the attacks that the, that the world is, is, is throwing at us, that we ought to trust in God. Because at the end of the day, he's going to take care of us, right? I mean, I mean, Elijah of all people is a witness to how God answers prayers, right? In this chapter before, he's surrounded by his enemies, and God sends down fire, consumes the sacrifice. Yes, everything works out. So rather than fleeing and abandoning the remnant that's left who are faithful in Israel, Elijah should have been going right back into it. Because he should have known that God was going to protect him if he placed his trust in the Lord. So he ends up, and look at chapter 19, verse 9. Chapter 19, verse 9. And there he came to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, 
what in the world are you doing here? Okay. Why does he ask him that question? Because if we look at verse 17, as we skip over our text for today, and him who escapes from the sword of, of Hezio shall Yehu slay. And him who escapes from the sword of Yehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Do you see that? There's still, there's still 7,000 Christians left. <laughs> yeah. They're not really, I mean, you know what I mean? The faithful, right? There's 7,000 faithful that are left. And, uh, and and it's to them that Elijah should have should have remained and and been and been you know supporting and so forth like that. But instead he goes and flees and hides, right? Yeah. God has not been dramatic enough in his life for him to trust in him, right? So now the Lord's gonna teach him a lesson about how the Lord acts in our life. And it's a beautiful lesson that doesn't always mean the calling down from heaven. But nevertheless, the calling from heaven of fire, right, which he's just seen, right? But he's going to act in a very powerful way, in a way that the Lord more oftentimes acts in our life, yeah? And that is, he's going to send these dramatic things, right? All of us, and maybe this is my my, my homily point, maybe you've got another question, I, I don't know. but But all of us looking oftentimes to be knocked off on our, our horse, right? Like St. Paul, right, Annie? I don't no. know. No. Dramatic. No. Annie, please. I totally set you up for that. St. Paul did not get knocked off a horse. He I wasn't know. riding a horse. It's an artistic representation from the Renaissance period. It just says a bright light flashed around him and he fell to the ground. There's no horse in the story. I caught you all in that one. But here in this case, here in this case, there's a similar occurrence because most of us want that, right? Like, God, why don't you just intervene in my life? Heal my cancer, like in a dramatic way. Why don't you come walking on the water? Why don't you make the big thing happen in my life? You know, and then I'll, then I'll trust in you. Then I'll place my trust in you. My brothers and sisters, take a deep breath right now. Do you see what a miracle that is? That you even have the ability to breathe in? That there's something that you can breathe in? That the ground holds you up? We we are a walking, this entire created order is a walking miracle. It's a, it's a, existence itself is a miracle. And yet we become blind to that. And we begin fearing for our life, much like Elijah was fearing for his life. I'm going to share, share with you a quotation from St. Ephraim, the Syrian, just because I love St. Ephraim. It's two paragraphs, a little bit long, but I think it's helpful. Yeah. He says this, now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks and pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. Now, after the wind, the earthquake came, and after the earthquake, the fire. And Elijah noticed that the Lord was not in the earthquake or in the fire. This was the purpose of such a revelation. The Lord wanted to instruct the prophet through various figures in order to correct his excessive zeal, to lead him to imitate, according to righteousness, the providence of the Most High, who regulates the judgments of his justice through the abundance of mercy. Of the, sorry, the abundance of the mercy of his grace. From the allegorical point of view, this is the meaning of the frightening signs that preceded the coming of the Lord. The earthquake and the fire kindled by the strong winds prefigure the type of dreadful signs that will precede the final days of judgment. He stayed at the entrance of the cave because he did not dare approach the Lord who was coming to him. He wrapped his face saying the creature is not worthy of seeing his creator, but he did not move from his first thought, even though he saw the image of the benevolence of the Lord of his Lord and the symbol that was presented to him. And in addition, he experienced his admirable mercy and effable love for, for mankind. Who would not have been astonished by the word of the divine majesty who asked him with love, what are you doing here, Elijah? But Elijah did not change his mind or shut his mouth. Instead, he rose against the sinners once again and complained about the sons of his people before the Lord, who asked him the reason for his flight. Notice now St. Ephraim commentary, commenting on verse 10. He said, so he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Right in verse 9. And he said, I have been very je jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thy altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I... 
Even I alone only am left. Well, that's not really true. There's 7,000 of them, right? And they and they seek my life to take it away, right? So there's there it is, right? He's 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 fearing that the Lord will not take care of him ultimately, right? And then he gives them this 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 moment of um of uh of kind of catechesis about how the Lord is going to act in such a way that it's so oftentimes unseen. This is why, can I get on a, a hobby horse for a moment? This is why I told you, you got to stop and smell the roses. And in relationship, they have to throw out the television because we become so, we're, we're unable to see anymore, really. We're unable to hear because we're just so bombarded, Right. I remember I was commenting on this passage as doing a Bible study down in Los Angeles a number of years ago. And I was flying into Los Angeles along the California coast. The airplane took this coastal route. It was really cool. And so I'm flying through like the coast of California is gorgeous. And we're flying like how often do you have to fly and look down on the most beautiful land in the entire created order? And um and uh, I, I'm and I'm just like gawking at them. My mouth is on the ground, looking at all the bays and all the cool mountains and all the rivers. And, and there's people. They got their shade down. They're watching a movie. They're doing all this stuff, and they're flying over a miracle. And we become so uh, so much like that in so many places. I just encourage our participants today um uh to take dramatic steps to begin to slow down to be able to hear god whispering again you know you know god whispering is that smell of the coming out of the flower the god whispering is the way when you cut your hand and it begins to heal you know I, we we don't like we like pick the scab off and that's move how you on came right? back to the faith right yeah that's how i came back to the faith yeah i was i was sitting in a bar and i started looking at my hand no, I was waiting for lunch. Okay. I wasn't drinking, but I was waiting for lunch. And I was sitting there at, at this kind of little bar spot and, and I looked at my hand, it was healing. And um, I started thinking about, wow, that, what a miracle that is. We need to begin to see that again. And I think this, this passage, this Sunday gives us such a powerful, such a powerful example of how the Lord acts in our life in the small ways. And I'll give you one last, one last story and then we'll move on it doesn't really have so much to do with this but father benedict rochelle remember after he got hit by that bus yep. he got hit by a bus he would talk like this yeah and uh the first time he called me he was i was it was like six in the morning and i was asleep and he called me because i had written him a letter asking him to come and speak at the institute and on the and then i i answered the phone hello I, and he, on the other side of the, on the other side of the, the line he goes Hello, is Sabatino there? That was my name before my ordination, Sabatino. And I said, who's this? And he says, this is Father Benedict. Father Benedict. Father, are you a priest from the Diocese of Arlington? Because that we just started the Institute and I was working in the Arlington Diocese a lot. This is Father Benedict Rochelle. And you're like, I bet you woke up at that moment. <laughs> yes. I, I wrapped my face in my cloak. And I went and stood at the entrance to my bedroom. <laughs> so, I believe you know, that. so there it is. So we're going to now, we're going to move into the, uh, the response to a Psalm and the gospel, but I think it's something to hold on to how the Lord acts in our lives in the midst of the turmoil, the disaster, the difficulties, which we face. If, if we can keep our eye on him, if we can keep our ears attentive to him, if we begin to walk in his ways again, in his environment again, yeah, we are a people made for communion. We have communion with everything around us, how we come to know, we breathe communion, we smell communion, right? Everything is about communion. But of course, the Lord's made us this way so that we could have communion with him. Unfortunately, so many times we use this gift for communion in, in so many ways that are destructive to our souls. 
and we need to make decisions about how about how we communicate, what the atmosphere is around us, the atmosphere in our homes, the atmosphere in our cars, the atmosphere in our, our, our workplace, and so forth, so that we are constantly communing with the one for whom we have been made. We might be drawn up to him and be saved from this turmoil, from this difficulty, from being hunted by Jezebel, from the worship of false gods like Pokemon. Yeah. So with that, let's take a look at Psalm 85. Yeah, and as you were telling that story about, you know, the little cut on your hand yes. that you're looking at, you know, I mean, obviously we're, we're constantly working out our salvation, but there in that moment, you're looking at a little cut on your hand as you're telling that story. I'm thinking about like, that was the beginning of your process of salvation, right? Father, mm. I'm reading, Lord, let us see your kindness and grant us your salvation. Mm. And then mm -hmm. it goes on to say, I will hear what the Lord proclaims the Lord for he proclaims peace near indeed is his salvation to those who fear him glory dwelling in our land i was just thinking like your salvation was so close it was on your hand you know like, yeah what a what a cool thing to be hearing as i was reading these these words if we continue to read this psalm look at this annie it's highness and truth shall meet justice and peace shall kiss truth shall spring out of the earth and justice shall look down from heaven the lord himself will give his benefits right he will bestow his blessings but how is it going to happen our land shall yield its increase because, of course, during this time, there was a, a drought, right? And there was famine in the land, if you read back in, in First Kings here. Justice shall walk before you and prepare the way of his steps So before him. So, so how, the yield, right? How many times we drive by a field that's planted or fruit trees or, I mean, I live in California, so I see this, but we walk by these miracles, you know? And, but do we see? Do we, do we take a bite of food and, and, and taste the goodness of the Lord and see his kindness towards us? Or have we become so blind that we, it's all around us and yet we've seen, Lord, slay Jezebel, right? Tear down the pocket, mom. I mean, tr I'm, trust me, I'm the first one to say this, okay? But, right. you know, you want God to come down crashing in. But remember, the, the, the wheat and the, and the weeds, the wheat and the tares, right, the, the, are growing together. And so oftentimes, pocket mom is right here. Yes. The television's still in our living rooms. The radio is still tuned to a non-Catholic station, isn't it? And uh, my cell phone, you know, is still there as the primary thing I have communion with in my life so it's filled up with my twitter feed yeah there you go all right guys uh let's go ahead let's move on to let's go on to Matthew chapter 14 here verse 22 is that right Annie yep verse 22 is where we're beginning let me Matthew know when chapter you're 14 okay all right let's here go. we go there we go after he had fed the people Jesus made the disciples get into a boat and proceed him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds after doing so, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When it was evening, he was there alone. Meanwhile, the boat, already a few miles offshore, was being tossed about by the waves, for the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, he came toward them, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It is a ghost, they said. And they cried out in fear. At once, Jesus spoke to them, take courage. It is I, do not be afraid. Jesus, Peter said to him in reply, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. Peter got out of the boat and began to walk on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw how strong the wind was, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught Peter and said to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? After they got into the boat, the wind died down. And those who were in the boat did him homage, saying, truly, you are the son of God. I still like I have to crack up every time when I like Peter wants 
Jesus to prove that he's Jesus by like putting his own life at risk. I just think, Peter, were you like really thinking about that? You know what I mean? Like, here, let me come out and risk my life so that you can prove that you're who you are. (laughs) Nice. And this is, this is fundamental to really what this whole, this whole section that we're actually skipping is, and and, and everything that's been going up to this is the question of who Jesus is. This is the fundamental question that's being asked. And and now, now Jesus is going to walk on water and they're just going to, they're, they're, and, and the, the conclusion of this text, of course, we read this beautiful proclamation, truly you are the son of God. But in the midst of it, I mean, it, it's not as though Elijah didn't know the Lord was the true God, right? And yet he he's fearing for his life. Yeah. But let's contextualize this text a little bit here, Annie. Yeah, what's yeah, the first yeah. thing? What's the first thing? Yeah, because, well, it is um, interesting because we did we skipped a week in ordinary time. So when we had the transfiguration last week, that would have been when we were reading the 18th week in ordinary time. So we would have gotten mm-hmm. um, a little bit from the in-between, but mm-hmm. as it is, the last gospel we heard prior to the transfiguration was Matthew 13. We were, you know, making our way through all of those kingdom parables. Mm-hmm. And so we had like the precious pearl. So what have we missed? in between that's going to help us better understand this. Okay. So you have all these parables of the kingdom and we've talked about the importance of that this whole time. We also talked about, and if you're new to, uh, to Sunday, I apologize, but I can't go back and do it all over again. But we talked about second Samuel seven. Okay. The son of David is going to be the son of God. We talked about Daniel seven regarding the transfiguration and this thing is kind of like right there in the middle of this whole business with a, with a fundamental question that's being asked. And it's been it's asked a number of times of different people. But I'll just point out to you a couple of times that are that are super important here. If, if you look at this is after Jesus has done he's done a number of miracles. He's now giving the parables. OK, which is he's giving parables for a couple of reasons for those that are following to begin to understand immaterial goods. Yeah. Talking about what the kingdom of heaven looks like. Yes, but also so that they don't arrest him because he talks about weeds and wheat. Is he talking about us, the wheat or the weeds? Who is he talking about? Is he talking about people? What's he talking about weeds and wheat? He's very vague in how he catechizes because he's got enemies all around him, right? We've looked back at this passage before, but it just, it's kind of what pushes this whole thing to where it's at. And that is Jesuitical in a way. You can call this the real Jesuitical you know, like after the way of Jesus. Are you calling Jesus a Jesuit? No, I'm calling, I'm calling his ways Jesusitical. Okay, never mind. Yesu. Matthew chapter, can we move on? Matthew chapter 12, verse uh, 14. The Pharisees went out and took counsel against him. See that? Chapter 12, verse 14. Mm -hmm. Okay. Against him and how to destroy him. So that's kind of the the, you know where you're at in the gospel with that kind of stuff because they are now fundamentally opposed to him at this point. They're not asking questions anymore, but there's still groups around him that are kind of caught between the Pharisees and the and the apostles, right? They're halfway. They're not sure. Are they going to be able to leave their homes and do everything Jesus is asking them to do? Is they gonna or is this guy? You know, are they gonna? What's gonna? What's gonna happen to them? Right, Elijah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, they're, they're, they're seeing some serious miracles taking place and they're still fearing the Pharisees yeah. and, and, and Herod. Right. And so now, um, we have this, this whole list of things about kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven. I was talking with my brother yesterday about this and I was saying, you know what, what is, what is when, 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 um, when you and I talk about the kingdom of heaven now, okay, maybe it's a little bit unfair for SGR people, but but maybe for our non-SGR people, when your average Catholic thinks about the kingdom of heaven, what's their vision, Annie? Come on, paint it for me. Clouds, totally. Clouds, the fat angels, the kind of... Harps. Harps, exactly. I hope our ICUC people have disabused themselves of this. But for the Jew at Jesus's day, what would the kingdom of heaven look like? Now, we do talk a lot about this, the, the importance of understanding the kingdom of heaven as an earthly reality for the Jews. Yes, and this is true. They understand that when Jesus is talking about kingdom of heaven is at hand, you have to understand that for the Jews, the Davidic kingdom was a divine kingdom, it was divinely instituted. God dwelt in the temple 
physically, that is by the glory cloud, right? It was very much a, a theo, what do you want to call it? Theocracy, right? Theocracy. Very much yeah. a theocracy. So the kingdom of heaven is not this cloud thing like that. However, however, I would, you have to ask yourself also the question of what they would have imagined this thing to be like. And their imagination is spurred on by the, by the prophets and, and two primary prophets. And that's Daniel and Ezekiel in which they have visions of heaven. And the right. kingdom there, right? In which we talked about last week, the son of man come riding on the clouds of heaven to meet the ancient of days. And Ezekiel chapters one and two, the same thing happens. Ezekiel sees the throne of, of God and there's one in human form there. What? What's going on, right? So their vision of the kingdom of heaven is very much impacted by Ezekiel and Daniel who sees, who see a man there. So now they're asking a question, who is this guy? Who is the, well, first of all, who are we to ex expect? The Messiah, what is he going to be? He's going to be the son of David. He's going to be the son of God. I mean, what is this? Ultimately, what does this mean? And what does it look like? And now Jesus begins talking about this kingdom of heaven. Look at this. Verse 45, kingdom of heaven. Verse 47, kingdom of heaven. I'm in chapter 13. I'm sorry. Chapter yeah. 13, verse 45, kingdom of heaven. Chapter 47, uh, verse 47, kingdom of heaven. Verse 52, kingdom of heaven. You know, and, and so this is all going in here. And then look at this. Verse 50, uh, 53. And when Jesus had finished saying these parables, he went away. Now this picks up two weeks ago before the transfiguration, what we were covering. He's doing all the parables. And now look at this. Coming into his own country, that's Nazareth, he taught them in their synagogue. If you want to read a little bit better detail on this, Luke chapter 4, okay? Oh, right. He unrolls the scroll. They were astonished when he said, where did this man get this wisdom? Who, who has wisdom in the, in the, in the, in the uh, Bible? Oh, the son of David, right? Yeah. And these, and, and these mighty works. Is not this the carpenter's son? Where does this guy come from anyways? Yeah. Right? What is what, what is his origin? Right? Who is this guy? And then they took offense at him. And if you read the rest of the gospel, uh, Luke, he leaves there and he goes back to Kerm. Look at this with me. Now, hold your hand there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter four. You can. This is why you got to know your different gospels because they help each other. And you're going to read them side by side. Look at this. Um, verse 28. Chapter 4, verse 28 of Luke. When they heard this, all in the city were filled with wrath. They rose up and put him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down headlong. So Matthew just says they took offense at him. But now Luke gives us more. But passing through the midst of them, he went away and he went down to Capernaum a city of Galilee. Now we turn back to Matthew and look at what Matthew does for us now. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. Okay. Well, who's ruling over Galilee? Who's ruling over this whole area? It's Herod, right? Yeah. And Herod and his brother have split Herod the Great, their father's kingdom up in this Galilee area. Philip has the East Coast and Herod here it has the west coast yes and now we have this fight between two brothers in chapter 14 herod has taken philip's wife and john has gone and said that's not appropriate and now he gets his head cut off right so it's almost like an interlude but it's an interlude that's fundamentally important because now we got a question of whether jesus is the king and if he is the king what his kingdom looks like right now you have the meaning of two kings because Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven. He's about to claim dominion because that's what Daniel 7 says the son of man does, right? The son of man receives dominion over everything from the ancient of days in Daniel 7. So now Jesus, who is the fulfillment of Daniel 7, is going to have a confrontation here in the gospel, not per, not face to face. There's a confrontation in the gospel between who these guys are. And Herod then asks the question. Now, in Matthew, we don't get all the detail, 
Look at chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He who has been raised from the dead. Okay, now stop for a second and turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke to pick up this same story just before the transfiguration in the Gospel of Luke. Here it is. Chapter 9, verse 9, Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? You see this? It's the same discussion, two different Gospels. Mm -hmm. Herod in Luke asks the question, the same question that the Jews are asking in chapter 13 of Matthew verse 54 mm -hmm. right isn't this joseph and mary's son you see the questions being asked who is this then now we're going to come bring this whole thing to fruition now because because pr pretty quickly jesus is going to ask the fundamental question that we asked in our bible study last week we began such an important bible study in chapter 16 regarding the transfiguration we did not begin in chapter 17 we began in chapter 16 Verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he again, he asked his disciples, who do men say that the Son of Man is? And then he's going to say, who do you say that I am, right? Here's the thing, who is this guy? And now we can look at our gospel, because that's the fundamental question that's being asked. Who is this guy? And, and the apostles are asking the same question. They know, the apostles at this point know he's the Messiah. Yeah. But what does that mean? Whose son is he, really? And that's why the conclusion of the gospel this Sunday is so fundamentally important. When they worship him and they say, truly, you are the son of God. Yeah. Right? They figure it out. And it's all about this gospel. But now, Annie, that's, that's, that's kind of the big picture asking questions thing. We got to get into the, this, the gospel itself here. And we have to contextualize a little bit still. I'm sorry. I know you want to jump back in. But geography. Yeah, I wanted to ask that. Why it says here that he, well, he had fed the people. We didn't really talk about that, but that's the feeding of the 5,000 that happens yes. right before this. Yes. And then it says he made the disciples get into a boat and precede him, precede him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And then he goes up on this mountain. So the other side of what? Yeah. Like, and why is he sending them to the other side? Okay. So there's, there's a couple a couple things to answer that question. And I'm, I have to come back and bring in what I was just talking about, about the king, because John in his gospel gives us another detail to this multiplication. John conflates the two. He only reveals one multiplication to us. And in this multiplication, which happens in Capernaum. Okay. So Jesus goes, let's get the geography in place here. I'm just going to share my screen. You see this, Annie? the Sea of Galilee, and there's Capernaum. Here's the co cave, the cove of the sower, right? Where the, the good seed that the felt the seed that fell on good ground, right? Mount of Beatitudes and Tabga. Tabga is a Arabic corruption, Heptabagon, the place of the seven springs. There's seven big springs that flow out of here. And it is the place of the multiplication of loaves and fishes right here. Okay. And so he apparently is in Capernaum. It's not very clear except unless you go to the other gospels and he goes back to Capernaum after Nazareth Nazareth is about I don't know about a two to three day journey away he comes comes walking up here he gets to Capernaum right and things are very hot with politically hot he gets in a boat and it says he go he went to a lonely place and that place was down here there's trees all over the place and they go and they hide out but it doesn't take long for people to walk what is probably a 45-minute walk and come pouring into Tabga and surrounding him. And there's where the multiplication of loaves and fishes takes place. And now Jesus has bought his ticket to prison. Okay. He's taught he's bought his ticket to get his head cut off by Herod. Okay, because of John chapter six. Look at what look what happens in John chapter six. 
after this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a multitude followed him because they saw the signs which he had done. And Jesus went up the hills, and there he sat down, and his disciples, now the pastor of the Feast of the Jews, was at hand, lifting up his eyes, then seeing the multitude was coming to him. Jesus said, how can we buy bread so that these people may eat? So here's the multiplication in John. And the result of the multiplication, verse 14. When the people saw the sign which he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come to the world, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him. Bingo. But, but, but my brothers and sisters, the problem ultimately here is that they are perceiving him as an earthly king whose father is Joseph and mother is Mary. And Jesus needs to get them to realize that he is indeed the king of heaven. He is indeed the fulfillment of Daniel chapter seven, right? And, mm -hmm. uh, and so what does he do? He's, first of all, from a political, just a natural level, he knows the tensions going on. Herod's asking his question. He multiplies the loaves and the people say, let's make him king against Herod. So he says to the apostles, get out of here because you got to get out of Herod's territory. Otherwise, they're going to kill you too. Get in a boat and go to the other side. So they get out and they start rowing across the sea. And then it says in Matthew chapter 14, let's take a look here. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. I'm getting very excited. I was just at this place about a month and a half ago with our ICC pilgrims. It's an amazing spot. It's a place that none of the pilgrims, well, I shouldn't say none, but not very many pilgrims go to when they're in the Holy Land. They drive right by this on the bus. They go visit the multiplication of loaves and fishes. But this verse is fundamentally important, okay? Um, he made verse 22, he made something and go before the other side when he dismissed the crowd. And after he dismissed the crowd, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. And here's what's so cool, Annie. Right above, I got to share my screen again. Right above this, this place of the multiplications, right up here in the hills. Yeah. There's the view from the cave. Wow. See. Okay. He would have seen the storm coming in. That's the thing, Annie, is that this cave is an amazing spot. It Actually, it seats. I kid you not. I've been in there before. It seats 13 there people. He loved to people. Huh? Wow. It yeah. seats he, people. He loved to go and pray in this cave. Uh, this is the cave he loved to pray in. Um, this is the, the, the place he retires to. He loves to go place it by itself. Hmm. Okay. And, and there just above the place of the multiplications, he has this beautiful view. It's like a throne. I, I'm serious. It's like a throne over the sea. Now, Herod's, Herod's soldiers are probably searching for him. He's the apostles are out safe because they've now gone out of his territory. He's they're heading over into Philip's territory or out there in the sea. They can't get him. And just then this storm rolls in. Now I'm going to recommend to you. And how are we doing for time? We've got a couple of minutes, but Bargel picks. And I've recommended this number of times with Jesus through Galilee, according to the fifth gospel. And this is what he says on page 72. Now he's using the gospel of Mark as his reference point, but that doesn't matter. Okay. The following report given in Mark chapter six, verse 45 through 54, which fits so exactly into this landscape where I have now lived for over 12 years. He was a monk there at the Benedictine monastery of the multiplication of loaves and fishes touches me each time I read it immediately. Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side of to Bethsaida. What had happened? Why the hurry? John knew the reason. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew to a mountain by himself. This messianic upsurge was exactly what he wished to avoid. Herod, who in his palace in Tiberias, right? Tiberias is just south of here, like, I don't know, five miles, six miles, seven miles, right down the coast, okay? Lived within sight of the place of the feeding. Certainly, had, he had spies among the crowd. The messianic enthusiasm of the masses was palpable, perhaps evoked by the imprudent talk of some of the disciples. He had to get his disciples into safety. Get yourselves into the boat at once. Here we are in danger. Sail to the other side of the Jordan, to the tetrarchy of Philip, to Bethsaida. There wait for me. He did not worry about his own safety. He dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up the mountain to pray. 
The mountain where he preferred to stay time and again rose above the springs of Magadan. At the, at the southern end, facing the lake, there's a grotto below a, a hanging cliff known as the Irmos Cave, where Jesus could find shelter during his night prayers. That particular night, a cold east wind suddenly sprang up, the Shakirye, dreaded by the fishermen. At the end of winter, it can become particularly severe, endangering people on the lake. It becomes impossible to sail or row against the wind. Jesus was worried about his disciples, whom he had sent to Bethsaida, and from which direction this violent storm blew. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he alone was on land. And now our gospel story proceeds. Okay, Matthew inserts here the scene with Peter, who tried to cross the waves toward him. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Jesus stretching out his hand to him, and he goes on and, and, and so forth. So my, my point of reading that to you is that this is a storm which is known at that time of year to come in from the east, to blow in from the east, from the desert, and come across the Sea of Galilee and oftentimes catch fishermen unaware who are out in the middle of the lake. And Jesus is perched over, watching, it's like watching over creation. Wow. He sees the storm rolling in. And he goes out walking on the sea to save the apostles. Yeah, what a beautiful scene. What a beautiful moment this is, Annie. But I'm sure you have other questions about this. Well, I mean, I guess my my only other question is, you know, we're we're past the transfiguration now. And so, like liturgically speaking. Mm -hmm. So when when we're thinking liturgically now and why the church is presenting this message to us when she is, as we're looking ahead to the Feast of the Holy Cross, I mean, what do you think? What do you think? Is well, the I would say I, I just say we're still in the we're still in the time of Pentecost. OK, the church has gone out into the storms of this world. And is being attacked from all sides. Pentecost, I mean, from Acts of the Apostles, right? The apostles have gone out. And we now also have gone out in the spirit of God. And we realize it all's not going well. Not everything is perfect out there. And I want to, I got to share with you a quotation from St. Augustine. He says this, the boat carrying the disciples, that is the church, is rocking and shaking amid the storms of temptation while the adverse wind rages on. That is to say, its enemy, the devil, strives to keep the wind from calming down. But greater is he who is persistent on our behalf. Amid the vicissitudes of our life, he gives us confidence. He comes to us and strengthens us. So we are not jostled in the boat and tossed overboard. What a beautiful image that is about the importance of remaining within the church in the midst of all of these storms. Notice the storms are, they're, they're, they're making the boat shake right and we feel like we're going to go over feel like it's going to go it's, i mean isn't that the way we feel like the church right is you know getting hammered from all sides and yet it's within the safety of that boat that we are going to find salvation right and ultimately remember that the boat is not made out of wood and lacquer the boat is made out of people you and i and it's within that community that we are going to find salvation. It's going to be within that community that we're going to find protection against the vicissitudes and storms of this world. All the challenges we face. And how often we go form our friend community. I remember I was talking with a, a, some parishioners one time who will remain nameless. And, and they said, you know, Father, my friends really are up in the place where I live. I mean, my friends, my, my close friends aren't really at the church. I said to myself, well, then you have a different church hmm. because the church is not built out of wood here on Folsom Boulevard in Sacramento, California. The church is built out of people. And unless I live within that community, I can't really call that community my church. Yeah, how important it is then that we have a community within our church, that our church is, is, is that community for us. Yeah, it's going to buoy us up in the times of difficulty, that's going to strengthen us in the times of challenge. 
They're going to come in our life and they're going to come with sickness and, and addiction, sin, and, and all of the challenges that we face in this life. But then notice another aspect of this. Notice another aspect of this gospel that Jesus, that, that, uh, of Peter walking on the sea, right? He steps toward the Lord. Notice, look, chapter 14, verse 28. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, so notice, right? Who, who, is it, isn't that Joseph and Mary's son? So, so they're still like, not, they're not seen clearly, right? If it is you, bid me come to you on the water. Allow me to walk across this stormy sea, right? The difficulties of this world. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked in the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw Jesus, it doesn't say that. No. But when he saw the wind, right? Notice. Notice verse 25. Verse 26. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, yeah, verse verse 29. Peter got out of the boat and walked into verse 30. But when he saw the wind, notice the difference? Yeah. Peter loses sight of the Lord in the midst of the sea, in the midst of the what St. Augustine says, all of the, the attacks of this world. He loses sight of the Lord, and he begins to focus on the problem. Yeah? Hello, Elijah. He begins focusing on Jezebel and begins to lose sight of the Lord. And then he becomes afraid. Lord, I alone am left among all the prophets of Israel. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I just leave you with one last thing. Obviously, the proclamation at the end is fundamentally important. Peter comes to faith, right? It's not only in Matthew 16, 18 that he says, you are the Christ. It's here that you need to realize Jesus, Jesus, there's more than just Joseph and Mary in this story. Yeah. Right? There's more than just David, Second Samuel chapter 7. This is more than just the son of David. This is the fulfillment of Second Samuel 7. He is the son of God. But notice when Peter begins to sink, where is Jesus standing? What happens? What is the one indication that we know about the, how the Lord acts in that, in that moment? Immediately. Immediately. Does that say that? Immediately. Yeah, immediately. Yeah. Immediately reached out his hand. He's reached out his hand. That's where the Lord is in our life, right? He's there. He's there. If only we would cry out to him, Lord, save us. But even in that moment, don't lose it. Call the doctors. Right? You know, in the old days, in the old days, when you got sick, you went to the priest. That's what it says. Right? You call the, when you get sick, call the priest yep. to anoint you. How many of us go to our doctor's appointment or we go to, even worse, go to surgery? And before we get surgery, well, we might pray, but we don't go to the priest and ask for to be anointed, right? It's, it's, it's James, Annie, right? James, let's go over here real quick. James chapter five, there it is, chapter five. I highlighted my Bible. That's nice. why, see that? Chapter five, verse 13. Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is any cheerful? Let him sing a praise. Is any among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. If you are suffering in the midst of the challenges of this world, cry out to the Lord. Allow him to stretch forth his hand. And who's his hand? Right? It's you and I are the hands and feet and eyes and ears of Jesus. Ask the priest to anoint you so that the Lord can come to you and bring healing to your life before you go to surgery, for God's sake. Don't you dare go to, the, to a, 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 a life-threatening procedure or some difficulty in your life or some challenge, not just physically, but spiritually, and not turn to the only one who can save you in the midst of the storms of this life and this world. Okay, Andy, we're going to run out of time here in our Bible study. Let's take a look very quickly at Romans chapter 9. Unless you yeah. have any more questions. Do you have any more questions about the gospel? 
No, actually, I was going to transition to Romans chapter nine, because as I'm listening to you talk about how much we need to be on the boat, you know, be in the church. That is St. Paul so desperately wants his people to be on that boat, too. And you hear it in this reading. Yeah. So here's Romans nine, nine, verse one, right? One through five. Brothers and sisters, I I speak the truth in Christ. I do not lie. My conscience joins with the Holy Spirit in bearing me witness that I have great sorrow and constant anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred according to the flesh. They are Israelites. There's the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. There's the patriarchs. And from them, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Can we just can we just just take St. Paul and say to all of us, you've been baptized into Jesus. You got everything. You have a priest to turn to. Yeah. What anguish is there in, in our hearts when we see when we see the faithful who have so much counting it as so little? Elijah fleeing from 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 an earthly king when he has the heavenly king. Peter turn his eyes to the wind when he has the one who has the spirit of God in front of him. Let us learn a lesson this this Sunday about our trust in the Lord in the midst of the difficulties of our life and place our trust in the only one who can save us and cry out, Lord, Lord, save me. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and to ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.